Um, hello, everyone. This is Premier Chess CEO, National Master Evan Rabin, and I am very excited to be here with a very special guest, National Master James Altucher, who himself is one of the biggest podcasters around. Uh, he's an American hedge fund manager, the author of 20 books. Um, he's also sold uh, and well, he's co-founded uh, 20 companies, um, which is just you know, absolutely amazing. He's a Cornell grad, uh, and he is also a U.S. chess master. So, uh, James, it's my pleasure and honor to have you on today. Evan, pleasure to be on here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that, you know, obviously is, is, is your life in, you know, very much a nutshell. I mean, you've done, uh, you know, obviously so much more. Um, the, the first question I had for you, just out of curiosity, I mean, you're, you're one of the biggest podcasters yourself. Um, you know, I have seen you, for instance, on, on Ben Johnson's podcast, the Perpetual Podcast that everyone knows and, you know, many others. But what is it like being on the other side of the fence, you know, being on someone else's podcast? Uh, I very much enjoy it, actually, because, you know, I've been I, I write quite a bit and I really started off as a writer and. Uh, you know, when you're writing, you're not I'm, not I'm usually not writing about other people or interviewing other people. I'm writing about my own stories and my own opinions and my own theories. So but when I do a podcast, I might have someone like, let's say the other day I had on Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google. And so he's <clears> on not because he wants to hear about me, but because he wants to share his ideas about artificial intelligence. And he just wrote a book on AI. And so that's what we talk about. So I like when I go on other people's podcasts, I get to talk about, you know, it's just more of a free flowing conversation. I get to talk about things I might be interested in or we're both interested in. And sometimes I do that on my own podcast, but but not so much. My, you know, my format, like many other formats, is an interview format. So, but I, I, sure. I experiment with it. Do you ever do you ever not have a guest on and just, you know, do your own thing? You know, I only did that on the first episode, actually. Um, since then, I've had guests on every time. But yeah, you definitely gave me an idea. You know, one, one of these weeks, I definitely need to do, you know, just to ramble myself. <laughs> yeah, like like you're, so you're an interview pro format podcast, right? So maybe yeah. do one where you just say, OK, this podcast is going to be my 10 favorite openings or the, the 10 <laughs> openings every beginner should know something like that and just see how it goes. No, I, I thank you. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're the idea person. In fact, one of the things that uh, I, I listened to, I, I actually listened to your first recording with, with Ben Johnson in, in 2017 yesterday. And uh, he had an interesting feature where people were going to, you know, vote in, uh, you know, questions and he asked you to name, uh, you know, the feature. Uh, so you were starting to, you know, think of all these like fun chess puns. So um, yeah. I, I did know that there was definitely going to be like, you know, a little bit of, of creative ideas, uh, you know, on, on the show for sure. So, um, yeah. And, and, you know, you see now that with the popularity of like chess streaming and chess podcasts like, like Ben's and, and, uh, uh, you know, there's so many different formats you could play with. You could have like, okay, here's Magnus Carlson. I'm going to do a whole episode about Magnus Carlson's craziest openings. So like, you know, Magnus plays in at least in bullet or blitz. He sometimes plays knight h3, sometimes plays a4. Like you could do a whole episode about that. It would be fascinating. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll definitely have to. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do find it, uh, you know, pretty interesting. Um, and, and the whole Twitch, uh, you know, phenomenon has been crazy. Of course, we have our own Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash premier chess for those that don't know. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm speaking of Magnus, uh, I'm actually excited to be going to Dubai uh, in two weeks for the set first half of the world championship uh, with uh, Magnus uh, against Nepo. What, what are your thoughts about the upcoming world championship? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm so, you know, obviously Magnus is an amazing player, but I don't think, I don't even, I don't know if like most people realize how amazing he is because he, he can, it seems to me like his strategy in general is to get into positions that are roughly equal or confusingly equal. Like maybe they're equal. Maybe he's even a little bit down and he just knows how to play those structures very well and, and, you know, able, able to overcome the opponent. Now, at the highest levels, that doesn't always work. He has to be all theoretical and booked up. But I, he's so creative in the opening because he doesn't really care about being engine ahead out of the mm. opening. He just cares about being in a position that he is comfortable with. And that's usually a somewhat, somewhat what, I, what I would consider a civil position. I'm sure it's not. But, you know, a position maybe with, again, like kind of equal-ish, and, and not like tactical equal, like just kind of equal. And, yeah, and he well, just... one thing I, I, I tell people all the time, James, actually, is, is Magnus Carlsen's style, right? Um, you know, very often I'll work with adult, beginner, intermediate students, and they'll go all out attacking. You know, I'm like, what justifies an attack here, right? And then I explain to them, look at all Magnus Carlsen's games where he gets these seemingly dead equal positions <laughs> against 2750 players in the end game and we'll just like somehow milk something from literally nothing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's fascinating. And like, I often tell people in who are investors, the, uh, you know, investing in chess and, and entrepreneurship in chess have, has some parallels, but investing, it's all about removing risk. We all know mm. that there's rewards in the stock market. You hear, you read articles every day. So-and-so invested in Bitcoin and then made $10 million in a week or whatever. And, uh, but, but, but that's rare, but we know the rewards are there. So the way to get those rewards is to not lose. So you have to like manage your risk. And so I always tell people the best way to win the game is to stay in the game. And now I'm, when I say that I'm referring to investing or entrepreneurship, but you see with Magnus, it's, it, it, it's the same thing holds. He, he makes good moves, obviously. He makes sure there's not tactical mistakes, and he's extremely great tactically. And he knows that if he stays in the game, there's a good chance his opponent could overreach, whether they're 2750 mm -hmm. or 2400. Well, well th those are two lines that I just couldn't help but write down that I'm definitely going to be using all the time. You know, investing is all about removing risk. Uh, and the best way to win the game is to stay the game, <laughs> to stay in the game. Yeah, because um, you, you, knowing that there's rewards in entrepreneurship investing, that's like, okay, that's obvious. So how do you get those rewards? It's not by like pursuing them. It's just about having a fairly good idea. You know, like Magnus plays a fairly, gets into a fairly good position or a decent position. And then it's about just all the time reducing that risk. Now, of course, He's also amazingly creative. Like, I don't know if you saw this game. I, I forgot if it was in, I forgot which tournament it was in, but it's fairly recent. He played against Anish Giri and mm. in like the eighth move, he sacrifices a queen, not really sacrifice. He gives up a queen for three pieces 
And it's a very unusual creative kind of position. And Magnus is extraordinarily good at playing these creative positions as well. I'm not saying he's a boring player, but I'm right. just fascinated by his ability to stay in the game and always look for small, tiny opportunities. And he, he, he has no, he, he has no commitment in the sense that he's not like committed to attacking on the King side or the queen side. He's just, he's every move. It's like he reformulates his plan. So, yeah, and I, I find it, you know, very interesting. You know, one, one thing uh, Grandmaster Alex Lenderman, who's been on the podcast, you know, once talked to me about was it's important to be able to be adaptable, right, and not just play your style, right? So he actually once told me, oh, go home and look over all Mikasal's games. You know, and I listened. I went home. I looked at, like, a lot of his games, and I was actually shocked. You know, most of them are these long positional like long games and of course you know like you and everyone else i was thinking okay Mikko Tal is this magical you know from riga player you know with all these wild tactical complications and uh i was actually relatively surprised to see that you know bulk of his games were actually like quiet right so at the end of the day yes you do have your style but you do need to uh you know kind of go back and evaluate the position and uh you know come up with plans uh, accordingly so yeah you know it it's interesting because I would say a fault of mine as a player, which I'm trying to get over is let's say, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm playing a, a knight C3 Sicilian. Okay. A grand prix attack. Uh, you, you, it start, you, it's very easy to get obsessed with doing your plan and only your plan, you know, queen mm. E1, H4, F5, <laughs> C6, <laughs> stack on F6 and then checkmate. So like, and if you don't get that plan done, you lose. Or, or if you're playing the King's Indian, if you don't get like F5, F4, you know, G5, G4, H5, you feel like you're going to lose. But it's very, it's very instructive to see these games where you, do, you don't have to play that way. You, you, could, you could use a variety of plans and, at every given point. Uh, you know, maybe even every move, you kind of say to yourself, there's got to be at least more than one plan here. And then you consider among the plans. Mm. Yeah, coming up with, you know, candidate moves and, and going from there is, is important. So, um, so James, I wanted to actually uh, completely change the, the conversation and, and, and backtrack. Um, one very common theme that we've had uh, on the podcast in many episodes is, you know, leaving uh, corporate America uh, to go into entrepreneurship. Um, so I myself worked at Oracle for three years and Rapid7 for a year uh, before uh, co-founding Pillar Sales, a company that did sales for startups, did that for a year and then, uh, you know, started Premier Chess. Um, but um, I, I know you, you know, graduated Cornell, briefly worked at HBO um, and then, you know, left to, to start your own thing. Um, you know, what, what made you leave HBO, you know, relatively quickly and, uh, you know, start your entrepreneurship career? Yeah, I, uh, I was at HBO. HBO was kind of the only real job I've had. I was at HBO from 1994 to 1997, and I had already started my own business. So I was kind of during the day at HBO and then all night at my startup, which was called Reset, and we made websites for companies. Now, you would think, oh, well, why, you know, that's such an obvious, you know, why did they need a company? They could just use WordPress. But at the time, nobody, no company had websites. This was in the mid nineties to, to late nineties. So we did, Amer we did the very first American express.com time Warner.com, uh, con Edison.com. I did, we did a lot of record labels, did, did a lot of movie studios. We did the websites for, for all the matrix movies, for instance. 
And uh, it's, you know, basically I left HBO. I did HBO.com and I had a small salary at HBO. I was, my title was junior analyst programmer and my salary was about 40,000 a year in New York city, which, you know, and I had gone to graduate school. I was 27 years old. I was, mm. I couldn't, I, I couldn't make ends meet really. And, uh, at my business, I was making more money at my side business than <laughs> all my bosses added up. And, you know, at some point it just made sense to just devote full time to it and think about really making it into a solid business because, you know, just, I was the CEO of the business. There was like 20 employees and I was just a part-time CEO. And <laughs> you really, a business, like any relationship, a business needs, needs watering and love and, and, you know, a healthy dose of motivation and optimism during the day. And within a year of leaving HBO, we were able to, you know, build up the business enough that, that we sold it. Unfortunately, I learned a lot about business, but I learned nothing about money. And, mm. uh, I, I quickly, I made a lot of money selling that business. And then I immediately went broke afterwards, took, it took about two or three years, but I went, I went dead broke, like to zero. Yeah. And, 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 and that, you know, uh, leads me to the, the next, uh, you know, question you, you, you sold, uh, you know, reset Inc for 15 million. Um, I was actually just an hour ago listening to one of your Ted talks, uh, you know, that you did where, you know, you, you, in, in your words, you, you became almost like a, a drunken Hollywood star, you know, that, yeah. that, that lost everything. Um, and, um, you know, look, I mean, that, 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 you know, in, in some ways it's, it's, it's crazy, especially looking back, uh, you know, many years, uh, you know, later, but, um, you know, you, you, you made 15 million and, uh, you know, made some investments and, you know, I, I don't know if this is, uh, an exaggeration or not, but, you know, you said you had like $46, uh, in your, in your bank account, you know, in the, in the, in the Ted talk. So, um, but nevertheless, I mean, you, you definitely, uh, you know, in chess words, uh, you know, made like some big blunders, uh, yeah. you know, there, right. Um, and, um, you know, what, what did you do to like, you know, totally, you know, come back from, you know, a big blunder, uh, and, uh, you know, move, move forward. Well, I was really depressed. I mean, I had bought this house, uh, and I had two kids that I had to feed, like there were two babies and I, I had I made all this money and I lost all of it through, through not managing my risk. I didn't, I didn't, I, I was going too much after the rewards and, you know, I sat, I sacked my queen thinking there was an attack and there was no attack. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I was, there was one period I was losing about a million dollars a week, you know, in the summer of 2000, I think. Wow. And it was very painful and I lost my house and everybody was upset at me and I had no friends because everybody's your friend on the way up, but they're not your friend on the way down. And uh, what really is important is you can't talk your way out of depression. You can, you have to do things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, every, every day I made sure I tried to do something to move forward. Now it took a long time to get to that point. I was very depressed for a long time. And when you're really depressed, you can't do everything, anything. So you have to start small. Like I, I started writing down 10 ideas a day and 
uh, every day, 10 ideas. Here's, here's 10 things I could do, or here's 10 book ideas, or here's 10 book ideas for someone else, or here's 10 business ideas for somebody else. Just I would practice exercising my idea muscle and try, I would practice being creative because creativity is a muscle. It's, it's just like, again, I'll make the analogy with chess. If you don't study tactics, chances are in a tournament, you're not when every when there's high stakes and it's a lot of pressure and you're nervous, you're not going to be you're not going to see all the tactics in a tournament game if you don't spend a lot of time practicing tactics at home. And uh, uh, so I, so I had to practice my creativity and, and the act of doing that not only gave me ideas for things I can do with my life and, and maybe have a career or make a, a living again. But also it just it just cheered me up like you're everything everywhere you look, you start seeing ideas like, oh, uh, there's here's here, here's this guy writing these articles. But it's it's similar to something I was thinking about with investing and I can combine the two. And here's new ideas. I, ironically, I remember my my very first idea I write. I still do this. I write 10 ideas every single day and my very first idea list was related to games, which was I wanted to write. I wanted to I came up with a, a chapter outline for a book I called. I was calling. I never wrote the book. I was calling this book How to Beat Your Friends and Family at Every Game in the Universe, because you think about it like you're, you're home for Thanksgiving. People break out Scrabble or Monopoly or whatever, at least back then. And, uh, you know, there's very simple ways to if you unless they're like tournament players in Scrabble or Monopoly or chess or whatever. There's very simple ways to beat your, your, your friends and family and anything like, like in Scrabble, if all you do is, is if you know all the legal two letter words and there's only about 103 of them, uh, like if you know XI, uh, QI, KA, ZA, th th those are legal words in Scrabble, you're going to beat all your friends in Scrabble if they don't know them. Or Monopoly, mm. if you know that the key is, and I won't go into the math of it, but the, the key is to own all the orange properties, then give up anything else to own the orange properties. Then you're going to beat all your friends at Scrabble at Monopoly. So that was my first idea list. And, and then I just kept going. And every single day I, I make sure I exercise that idea muscle. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as you said in, in your episode with, with Ben too, like the art of learning is, is really important, right? And it could definitely be, uh, you know, applied to anything. Um, and yeah, the, the, the art of resiliency is it's so important. Uh, you know, mitigating risk is an extremely uh, important uh, aspect, uh, you know, both in chess and business. Uh, and, my and, good friend. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was going to say my, my good friend and colleague, Jim Egerton, uh, who's been on the podcast as well. Uh, he wrote a book called Business on the Board. And one of the main things that he actually talks about uh, you know, as in chess, on one hand, you need to mitigate risk, right? You need to castle, you need to defend all of your pieces, uh, you know, et cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, you need to, you know, create initiative. Um, and of course, it's, you know, the same in any type of uh, investments or anything else. Yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong also, like, it's also important, and this is related to what we were talking about earlier, it's important to kind of diversify your initiative so that, if you see things are happening on the king side, you can get initiative there. But you keep your eye on the queen side just in case, you know, there's a possible for initiative there. So you want to have multiple plans. So when I was bouncing back, I was a writer and I was starting to make income from writing. I was writing for the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. I wrote some books. And then I also was 
starting a hedge fund. So I was building a hedge fund and making money from that. And I was also always looking into starting new businesses. So a lot of those businesses would fail, but because I had income coming in from other sources, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to lose the game if a business went out of business. And so that's the key. Hmm. So yeah, diversifying of uh, investments, right, is definitely a great way to mitigate risk and, uh, you know, achieve more. So um, next thing I, I wanted to, you know, get into, uh, we've actually had a, a fair amount of hedge fund people uh, on the podcast already. Uh, you know, my good friend, Chris Hunt, who does, uh, you know, consulting for hedge funds. Uh, Patrick Wolf, of course, a guy you've heard of, uh, you know, grandmaster who, who started a, a hedge fund. Um, my good friend, Evan Katz, who's a, a supporter of Trust in the Schools and, uh, you know, does um, a lot of fundraising for, you know, hedge funds. Um, what, you know, tips do you have for people that are looking to, you know, potentially enter the field? Obviously, it's something that attracts a lot of chess players. Uh, you know, there's also Grandmaster pa uh, Pascal Charbonnel, uh, actually, who's an upcoming guest, uh, you know, who's, you know, pretty big in the hedge fund industry. But uh, what, what do you have, you know, as a recommendation for people that are looking to, uh, you know, potentially enter the field? Yeah, I, there's a couple of ways. Like, you know, when I was first exploring it, it was still kind of the Wild West. There wasn't like a lot of, I mean, there were a fair number of hedge funds, but it was still a small industry. So you could be anybody and start a hedge fund. Now I think it's much more institutionalized, meaning a hedge fund is essentially like, like a bank. It's like a bank for rich people now. And, <laughs> uh, you know, in order to get in the hedge fund business now in, in, the, in the normal, what I would call institutionalized hedge fund business, you pretty much have to either work at a bank or a large hedge fund. Then you could maybe go either rise up in that hedge fund or you, or you spin out of that one and start your own. You, you also need to, you know, and this is true for whether it's a small fund or a large fund, you need to try to understand why you have an advantage. What is your, what is your unfair advantage? Because mm. if, if you, do, you know, there's, there's thousands, maybe even millions of very intelligent people who are investing and, you, you, you're competing with them. It is, it's a zero sum game. So you're competing against those people. So why, like somebody told me a, a, a strat, an investment strategy the other day, and it's a good investment strategy. And it's one that I've known about for 20 years It's a common strategy in the hedge fund world. And I said to this person, all right, it's, you, you figured out something that is already in the hedge fund world for 20 years or more. What is your, how are you going to beat the hundreds of PhDs who have written software kind of optimizing this strategy for billions and billions of dollars of investing? What's your advantage over them? And uh, my friend who was, who was talking to me, I think that person, individuals do often have advantages because they can get into smaller companies and they're more nimble than a hedge fund with billions of dollars. But she did not say that as an answer. So you know, I said, you know, you, you shouldn't do this strategy because you're not going to you're not going to beat these people who do have an advantage. And so hmm. you need to have some reason you have an advantage. Now, another way to look at this, though, is that where is the current Wild West? So maybe hmm. it's not in buying and selling stocks. Even if you wrote software to buy and sell stocks, everybody's doing that. So, uh, you know, the Wild West right now might be in, you know, DeFi crypto currencies <laughs> and you could be a younger less experienced person but if you have some edge 
that you feel in DeFi. A lot of a lot of institutionalized hedge funds don't understand those tokens yet. So you could potentially have an edge there, or you could have an. I mean, I know hedge funds that buy collectible baseball cards and they have some sort of edge. So you always have to think of like, what's your edge or what's your advantage, particularly if you're not going to go up through the traditional route. The traditional route is, you know, work at Goldman Sachs, work at a hedge fund, spin off from that hedge fund and have an unfair advantage. But try to find the areas where you could literally skip the line like, oh, OK, nobody knows about these specialized or maybe there's cryptocurrencies in the metaverse or maybe I could buy and sell property now in virtual communities like the metaverse. And those have real value because there's tens of millions of people doing this. So so maybe by almost being a virtual real estate uh, hedge fund, there's an opportunity. I'm just I'm making this up, but that's the that's the type of thing now where there's it's still the wild west and there's value. Yeah, well, I do think that it um, you know look is is just important to uh, for one, like you said, you know, build a competitive advantage, um, and that's you know whether you're you know a business like myself, you know, looking to uh, you know sell services. Uh, you know, whether you're, you know, someone, an individual looking to, you know, break into the field, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, oh, you know, that's important. Here, here's an idea I just had, which I think could probably work. Um, <laughs> uh, so so are you are you somewhat familiar with like, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin and stuff like that? A little bit. So there's a way like right now, there's all these cryptocurrencies built on top of Ethereum that are like exchanges. They're like almost like crypto exchanges, but they're also tokens. Uh, they're also like currencies that you could buy. So you could buy a bunch of Ethereum and these tokens will pay you like a, a huge dividend, like five to 10 to even 15% if you park your Ethereum in their exchange. And that's a way for you to mine new currents, new currencies in those exchanges currencies i'm getting too complicated but there might be a way there where you could hedge out your risk of the of holding the ethereum but just mine all these free currencies and have a decent return with almost no risk so that right. might be a good hedge fund strategy for someone just starting right no a a absolutely and uh, you know, it actually reminds me of one podcast episode that I listened to uh, Ben Johnson uh, with Pascal Charbonneau, actually, how, uh, you know, chess was actually something that, you know, I would say was his competitive advantage. Um, you know, people just saw like, ooh, grandmaster. And, uh, you know, it was actually like a big leg up uh, for him. And it also definitely helped me, uh, you know, in, in many of my job interviews uh, over the years oh, as well. Totally. So, By the way, this is this is the, the secret sauce of why it's great to be a chess master and, and underlining. You don't have to be a grandmaster. You don't have to be an international master. People don't know the difference. I, I tell people, <laughs> I, I tell people I'm a master and they say, Oh, Oh, this guy's a grandmaster. They don't know. We know that there's a huge difference. Nobody mm. else knows. So I was in a, I was in a cab about two years ago and we were just chatting. The guy was from Turkey and it, he said he played chess. And I'm like, I figured oh, he was some amateur player. And he was like, no, he was like the champion of Turkey for five years in a row. And he was, uh, he was an international master. He was an IM. And, and that guy spent, you know, 10 extra years being an IM compared to me getting to a 2200 rating and, you know, the master rating. And 
but I, but I was able to use that for, I got into college. I got into graduate school. I got it. I got the job at HBO. I raised money for businesses, raised money for hedge funds. Like people correctly or incorrectly associate a certain degree of discipline and risk management and intelligence with being a good chess player. They, and again, they don't know that there's such things as a FIDE master or an international. They don't know the difference. Yeah, no, and it, 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 it's very interesting. Most people don't, you know, people often ask me too, like, you know, how quickly will you become a grandmaster? How far away from you? Uh, you know, people have no idea, you know, so actually my good friend, uh, Mike Lowender in, in Boston, who's, uh, you know, one of my really good friends and mentors, he's, uh, you know, one of the best salespersons I know, uh, you know, out there, you know, one thing that, you know, he told me to do actually was like, why is national master not on your resume? <laughs> you know, oh, I put it actually on, after I, he, I put it on my resume, you know, and it, like literally it was, it was night and day after that. Um, you know, it was actually, he, he referred me to, you know, the company that he was working at several years ago in Boston. And, uh, you know, it's like, why is that on there? And I didn't like, wow, well, it was like literally night and day after that. So it was like absolutely amazing. I mean, it um, almost seemed, it, it almost feels like a weird thing to, to put on your resume. Like, Oh, I'm bragging like, Oh, on this, but it does make a difference. Like I, I, I showed up for my interview to, to get into college, I, you have to get have an interview. So I showed up for my interview and the guy was studying a chess game and turns out he was like a 1600 rated player and I was around 2000 at the time. And boom, I helped him analyze the game that he was looking at and that was the interview. And then, this, then when I went to graduate school, you know, the I went to graduate school where they developed the original version of Deep Blue, the chess computer that ended up beating Kasparov. And the only master level player they had uh, had just gotten his PhD and left. So I got rejected by every other graduate school except for Carnegie Mellon, which accepted me. And my office mate was the guy who was working on Deep Blue. So I played, played it was called chip test then. And I played chip test all day long, every day. Wow. You know, and, and, and I look, it, it could just do so much for us, you know, branding wise. Um, but also, I think, you know, probably more than 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 branding. Right. Um, you know, I do think that uh, chess definitely has some applications, uh, you know, within finance. So could you, could you talk about how chess has actually helped you, uh, you know, specifically skill wise uh, in the hedge fund industry? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's the idea of looking at all of your options and understanding all of your risks. So, and this is what I, where I messed up in the beginning. So I don't know, I don't know how much chess helped me, but maybe when I started taking a more chess like mindset to investing in finance, it helped me. But the idea is basically everybody, everybody thinks they have an opportunity. Oh, so-and-so called me. He's got this great opportunity and you know, huge numbers of people, everybody, half, half the people in China are going to buy his special refrigerator or whatever we should invest. And I always ask, why are we getting this opportunity? So for instance, here's the comparison to chess. If, you're, if you want to attack someone's king, why are you getting the opportunity to attack on the king's side? You have to have more pieces attacking than they have defending. There has to be a reason why you have an mm. advantage on the king's side. No, but there's no free lunch. Like if you're not just <laughs> going to get a free attack if they're already, if their defensive resources are there. And 
and nobody wakes up in the investing world and says, today's the day I'm going to make James Altucher rich. Like, <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to earn it again. I have to figure out why am I getting this opportunity? What is my unfair advantage in this situation? And same, the same holds true for, for chess, for investing, for entrepreneurship. Uh, so I would say there, and then also you have to ask like, you know, Oh, I'm going to invest big in this stock because I think the earnings are going to be great. And then someone should ask, well, why do you think the earnings are going to be great? Why would you know and not anybody else? And then you have to ask, well, what if the earnings aren't great? But don't worry, they're great. Yeah, but what if they aren't? Are you willing to lose that money? And then mm. the third thing is, is that even if they are great, what's the chances the stock still goes down? Because often it's buy the rumor, sell the news. So, you know, I think chess helps you look at all all the options, all the all the possible zugs that could occur on on the route to riches in an investment. So mm. I think it helps for that. And I think I think also there's a certain kind of studying that occurs in chess. You know, of course there's playing chess and you could be a good player, but you are, in order to be a good player, you also have to study the game and, and that requires a certain kind of discipline. You have to you have to memorize things, you have to study things, you have to understand things. Like if I just understand, well, here's this complicated semiconductor company, um, but I think they're going to have good earnings. You have to really understand why. You can't just you can't just understand what their numbers are. You have to get into the why. Like why what why is this semiconductor better than something that Intel or Nvidia might make? Why do people choose this over another one? Uh, uh, you know, and I think chess helps you to at least at a certain level, helps you to understand the why of things. Like, why are you playing this move? Don't just play it because Gary Kasparov played it. Played it because you really understand the move. And and look, I'm saying these things as if I know what I'm talking about. I have this problem. I'm saying these things because I have this problem. I, I could be prone to making just book moves and saying it must be fine. It's a book move. But <laughs> you have to really understand the why of things. No, that that's something that, you know, I've been explaining to a lot of students recently, actually, about is how you need to, um, you know, when, when you're learning openings in particular, right, you don't want to just play one that, like, fits your needs, you want to play one that actually, like, fits your style, and you like the, you know, resulting, uh, you know, position. So, uh, you know, speaking of which, um, you know, oh, I do, about, I wanna, can, can I add yeah. one more thing about the business? Oh, stuff? yeah, please, please. So, I've had the same business partner for most of my business activities for about 20 years. And most of our conversations are, are not about like, well, do we think this widget will sell in this market? Like, again, the rewards are there. If you, if you're halfway smart, you could, you know, you know, what's a good business and what's a bad business. But most of our conversations are about psychology. Like, Oh, we need to find out what's going on with this person or this person. How should we talk to them? How should we, you know, what, what sort of questions we should ask? What could we figure out without asking questions? And I think chess people underestimate the psychology of what, of what's happening. Like, you know, oftentimes you have to understand your own psychology first off, like, Oh, am I a little tired today? Am I a little distracted today? Maybe I shouldn't play something overly. I don't, I don't know. You might decide how you, how you play based on that, but also you get a feel from the opponent, like what kind of player are they? What sort of moves are they going to make? And this is a subtle part of chess. I don't think it's a big part that people think about, but there's a reason we like playing humans more than we like playing computers. It's because 
there's no psychology with computers. They're, they're going to make mm. good moves. Even if they're a weak computer, they're not going to blunder. Whereas humans could blunder. And, you know, as, as Mikhail Tal said, you need to bring your opponent into this, you know, dark forest where it's hard <laughs> to, to get out. And, you know, you make things messy and, and, and things, bad things can happen to your opponent. And I think Kasparov said, if you can make 10 threats in a row, you're going to win because the other side will blunder. But that's not true for computers. It's true for humans because of psychology. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's very interesting. I actually hosted a big event at the Yale Club uh, in New York last night. You know, we had 30 people there, 18 in a, in a simul. Um, you know, I lost three games. And um, in the simul. That's really great. I, yeah, it, it was great. And it was an awesome event. Just, you know, back to in person, you know, which was amazing. Um, but I will say, you know, if there's definitely one common theme in the three games that I lost, you know, they all went for complications, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and, and, and honestly, in, in each of, not to make excuses, you know, in, in each of the you know three games, I, I, I definitely had, uh, you know, winning positions. One was actually a fried liver, <laughs> you know, the first time like I ever played that, you know, in like an actual game <laughs> in well, so, uh, you know, yeah, a very I, long time, you it know, it feels so, like. It feels like an assignment. It's more true than ever. Like the way to win the game is to to stay in the game, because if you get into a fried liver and they know the opening, they could be a twelve hundred rated player and and beat you if you don't know the opening. Yeah, no, definitely, and and you know, of course, you know, one bad move, especially when you're walking around and this and that. Um, it was it's a great event, by the way. Uh, you know, I did it with Gary Bryan, who uh, you know works with us, and uh, Bruce Pandolfini, of course, who you know is a, a, an amazing special guest. Um, you know, he was recently the advisor for you know Queens Gambit. Yeah, um, he did a you know awesome Q and A and um, you know Bruce is a, a dear friend and mentor of mine, and um, you know, yeah, it was just you know, an absolute uh, amazing uh, uh, event. And, did you grow uh, up in New York City? I, I did. Uh, you know, I've, I've actually known Bruce since uh, I was eight years old. <laughs> so, you, and, you, I mean, I, I, uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're younger than me, but, uh, you know, all through the, the 90s and the O's, I was always playing in, in Washington Square Park, uh, like, uh, and I, li I lived for a while with a bunch of chess players in New York City. Do you know Elon Schwartz? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Elon's a good friend of mine. We've been friends since we were tiny. So, uh, you know, I like the New York City chess scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, I've been very, very grateful to be part of it. Um, you know, and also, like I do, I would say, you know, even take for granted sometimes the fact that, you know, I've had the opportunity to, you know, learn with people like Bruce. Um, you know, I want to actually share one line. Bruce just actually commented, uh, you know, this morning on, on one of my Facebook posts about the Yale event yesterday. Uh, you know, he said, Evan is an outstanding teacher and consummate professional. His love for chess, along with the skill set of fine qualities, have enabled him to draw many devotees to the fold. He's a true spokesperson for a noble game. Um, so, of course, you know, coming from someone like Bruce himself that, uh, you know, really means a lot. So um, it's, yeah, it's great to have people like you and him to, uh, you know, communicate with, uh, you know, he, he's been on the podcast as well, of course. And, uh, you know, he's a great guy. So um, I wanted to, you know, ask you, I mean, you, uh, you know, relatively had a, a pretty late start. You know, you played your tournament 
uh, your first tournament and when you were 17, uh, you know, you actually, I think, became master in about a year or two. You also took, uh, you know, lessons with uh, another very important icon, I think, in the chess world, uh, John Fedorowicz, who's definitely probably the most entertaining grandmaster I know. Uh, we he, hung out he, for a while, actually, at the U.S. Open this past summer. <laughs> he was such a but, great uh, teacher, too. So what I mean, I have to ask, what was it like in learning with the Fed? <laughs> It was it was great because first off, he's very serious. Well, first off, I will say my understanding of so I stopped taking lessons for 25 years and I stopped playing in tournaments for 25 years, basically from 1997 through now, roughly. And Fedorowicz got me in six months from 20, I think I was 2048 to about I think my high was around 2240 or 2250, something like that. But maybe I was even stronger, uh, uh, you know, because I hadn't I just stopped playing. But um, he was very serious about openings in a way that I'm, I just can't be now that I'm, I'm older. Like, so we would really go over openings and he was really good at explaining the ideas of the openings. And that's pretty much all we would do is just go over openings. And but he was very interesting. He had a very intuitive sense of things like he would say. I would make a move. We'd play games and I would make a move and he would say, hmm, uh, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to do this. And within three moves, he would be destroying me. And, <laughs> you know, now it's much more important for me to understand chess more because I can't I literally can't memorize the lines anymore. Like my memory is not as good. And I don't know if I'm hoping I'll be as good as I was back then like it's it's an effort like and and you know the other thing i've realized lately is that tournament chess is a lot different than online chess like i've been playing mm -hmm. online all my life or all my adult life and uh tournament chess i've just recently started playing again i'm just i'm not i i feel like online i'm as good as i ever was but at tournament chess there's some skill i'm, I'm now rusty at that i have to figure out it's difficult but yeah, Fed was well, a great teacher. And, and now, now I should mention, I take lessons from um, Jesse Cry. And he's oh, a, very cool. Yeah, he's a grandmaster. He's got a really great positional understanding of the game. And he, he really approaches, you know, openings and end games all with that same positional view. And, and he's he's got a, a, a particular philosophy about how to play. And I really uh, appreciate his his approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know him well. I went him actually, I think, once at a tournament in Massachusetts uh, several years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I heard great things about him. And he also, uh, of course, is a guy who, you know, became Grandmaster very, very late, relatively, you know, in his, I believe, late 30s. So, um, you know, he's, he's definitely, uh, you know, an inspirational guy uh, as well. Yeah. Um, so that actually, uh, you, you actually sort of answered my, my next question, actually, accidentally. But uh, one of the things that uh, I, I heard on Ben Johnson's podcast, and again, this is this is four years ago. Uh, you, you basically said you would never play tournament chess again. You know, you wanted that 2200 rating. You never wanted to, uh, you know, play tournament chess again. So what, what made you get back into the swing of things? Yeah, it's, it's uh, several things. One is, first off, as I mentioned earlier, if you're looking to be a chess master to help some other aspect of your career, then just do it and don't play in tournaments anymore because no <laughs> one gives a shit if you're 
an international master or a grandmaster or a master. No one knows the difference in, in among civilians. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the, but, but I truly fell in love with the game again and I really wanted to get better. And the only way I think to get better, and I see this, is to play in really long, slow games and tournament style. Because even when you're playing online, you're distracted by all sorts of things. But when I'm playing in a tournament, you sit there for five hours and you don't move. And you're, you're, you're not just playing one game, you're playing the hundreds of var you know, variant games that could stem from this one game. Because you're thinking of all the variations in your head. And so you really learn, uh, you, you re and then if you analyze those games afterwards with a coach, for instance, if you analyze those games afterwards, you really become a better player. And I would say a, a, a big, like, uh, when I first started playing on Lee Chess or Chess.com, I was having a hard time. I was like around 1900. But then playing slower games and analyzing them, I got up to like 2400 on, on Lee Chess. Uh, and, you know, I got, I got, you know, I definitely improved online. I felt like I got good. But the challenge I'm having now is it's a risk because you play in the first tournament in 25 years, there's all these kids. Like when I was playing in tournaments, there was no kids. There were no kids. Zero. Now, last tournament I played in, you know, this 13-year-old 2256 player, very good player, by the way, like he's a genius player, uh, totally crushed me. And, uh, and you have to learn how to like win again. You have to learn how to be, you have to learn who are these new people who are playing, like how did they learn? And, and, and then you have to learn how to, how to win in, in that kind of environment where... In blitz, if you have an attack and you win a piece, okay, maybe you blunder as you as you uh, as you try to win, but probably not, and or hopefully not, and you win. But in tournament play, even if you're winning, they're going to come up with resources that you've never thought about, and I have to get used to that and and get used to you know that style is a different style that I haven't done in 25 years. So I've I've gone below the 2200, and now um, um, I, I'm hoping to. I'm, I'm committed to sticking with it and, and not being disappointed, which is a big skill also in chess and, and getting back and, and beyond. Yeah. Well, I mean, props to you for, you know, getting back into it. You know, a lot of people keep saying that they will and, and never do. Um, I'm actually in terms of, you know, chess wise in a, in a very similar boat to you. I'm a, I'm a national master. Obviously I, you know, take pride in that, you know, running the company that said my rating is 2175 at, at the moment. Uh, not something I actually like, you know, advertise all the time, but well, it, yes, it is true that, you know, once you're a master, you're a master, right? Yeah. So, that, that, um, that's the other thing I found out too, is that once you have the national master title, you're always a master. So, so then I started caring less about the rating because, oh, if someone says, are you a master? Of course, I'm still a master. I, that hasn't changed. So, but, but now um, I, I really want to, I, I really fell back in love with the game. And it really became, as an older player, it really became a different game for me. I feel like I understand the nuances more. Uh, and again, online, I'm fine. But uh, over the board, I, I feel like oh, I need to learn this skill. And it's a pleasure to, to learn and relearn a skill and to, and I, you know, I switched from D4 to E4. And so I'm learning a whole, it's like a whole new game, just playing a different opening repertoire. And 
I, I, I really enjoy it and I enjoy getting better at it. And it's something I've been doing since I was a kid. So, you know, it's like, the, it's the, it's the thing in life I've loved the most. And I think with all the confusion in COVID and all the, you know, the polarization in the country, it's the one thing I was able to retreat to where there was kind of truth on, uh, on the board. Like you either win or you lose. You don't, you, you, there's no arguing it. You, you, you have to make the moves to win or you make the moves to lose. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think that is, uh, you know, definitely important to, you know, consider, I know a lot of adult beginners, especially now with, with, with COVID, you know, they don't even see, you know, the difference of, you know, playing online and in person, you know, I actually one adult beginner that I was communicating with at the Yale club event last night, you know, she said like, you know, what, what, what suggestions do you have for me? Do you think I could, you know, do well in chess, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was like, Honestly, you're in a Yale. You're a member of the Yale Club. You're a relative, relatively successful person, <laughs> right? You definitely have what it takes to do well in, in tournaments. You just need to get away from the screen and, and go play one, right? Um, and and learn. <laughs> yeah, because you in a tournament, you feel something's at stake. Like in a blitz hmm. game, nothing is necessarily uh, at stake. You 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 win or lose, you go on to the next game. But in a tournament, there's there's you're playing one game a day or two games a day, and uh, you you're spending five hours, so you're investing a lot of mental energy. You want to win, and you'll get disappointed if you lose. So it's it's it really ups your game to play in tournaments. Let me ask you, Evan. Like when you're teaching, what sure. what is the most important thing people should study? Is it you know some people say opening, some people say end game, some people say tactics. What do you think you get? What's the 80 20 rule here? What's the 20% you could study to get the 80% of the value? Sure. So obviously it depends on the player and whatnot, but um, on the whole, um, yeah, I mean, for sure, tactics, you know, I think is, is the most important, um, you know, and also, uh, you know, very simple thought process, right? A lot of players, you know, learn any openings, middle games, end games, you know, et cetera. Um, and they spend way too much energy trying to like memorize everything, right? When at the end of the day, you know, I actually teach a very distinct thought process that applies to any position uh, from, you know, the, the starting position to, you know, the, the end of the game. And, um, you know, basically it, it goes like this, you know, you figure out exactly why your opponent made his move. Uh, you figure out if he had another move, uh, you know, what it would be. And then you think about, you know, what changed about the position. Given that you come up with candidate moves, um, then you do the tree method and figure out which one, uh, you know, will give you the biggest return on investment. Uh, if you see a good move, look for a better move. Uh, and then lastly, you know, do a blunder check, you know, make sure that there is nothing, uh, you know, big that you're missing that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, maybe you didn't consider, right? So I think, uh, you know, Things like that, um, you know, will actually help the most. Um, and I would say, I would actually argue if you could do that and follow basic opening principles, that's pretty much like 16, 1800 in chess right there. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you know? I, I, mean I, I kind of think <laughs> if, if all you do is know basic opening principles and study tactics, you're probably going to not do so bad. Yeah, no, it's and it's totally true. And I think, look, there are some players that show that, <laughs> you know, um, because like, let's look, say, let's say someone's a, a 
12 year old grandmaster as we've recently had like it's not like he's maybe he has put in 10,000 hours but clearly there's some talent there is the talent on the positional side is the talent on the tactical side my guess is it's mostly on the tactical side but I don't know yeah and and Look, I, I think for sure it's it's a mix of both. I definitely don't think, you know, Mistra, who you're probably referring to, yeah. uh, you know, and is nearly his amount of time, you know, studying chess as, you know, most, you know, adults. But, uh, yeah, he definitely has a lot of natural talent uh, and is showing that. And most certainly he's done, uh, you know, a lot of puzzles and calculating. And, uh, you know, for instance, yeah, that's why um, – you know, I, I did lose to, and it's funny, like one of the three games I did lose to yesterday was one of the few kids that were there. You know, one of the members says his kids, right? So, kids are machines. You know, it was machines. Um, you know, and honestly, this was, uh, you know, a little bit of a silly case uh, where, uh, you know, I, I basically fell for uh, like a simple mating attack. But um, at the same time, it, it was, I mean, he just totally like bluffed me. I was like, oh, you know, I was like winning. I just like, oh, I'll take this pawn. And then like I miss mating too. Yeah, and ki- with <laughs> kids, know? rating doesn't matter either. Like a, like a 1300 rated kid could play a game as good as a 2300. Like you never, you never know what you're going to get when you're playing a kid. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it's it's absolutely uh, amazing, and uh, you know, I, I I definitely you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it just shows that you got to be a hundred percent conscious. <laughs> you know, active rest is very important, right? You can never just you know completely sit. So, um, speaking of which, you know. The last thing I, I really wanted to, you know, ask you about speaking of, you know, kind of thinking on your feet. Uh, one of the cooler things that, you know, you've gotten into in recent years uh, is, is stand up comedy where you need to think on your feet, uh, you know, like there's no tomorrow. Um, I actually grew up, uh, you know, on the Upper West Side. I knew stand up New York, um, you know, since I was a kid. I've been, uh, you know, many, many times, um, you know, my, my friend Sam Marill. Um, we certainly know has oh, performed a there comedian. a couple of times. Um, I actually met him, by the way, through a chess player, Adam Maltese, uh, before Sam actually even really got up there, actually. Um, Sam and I actually happen to live in the same building now, too. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, Sam, I, Sam, he had a special about I'm, I want everything's like two or three years ago now, but uh, he, he kind of tried it out at Stand Up New York and Amy Schumer uh, introduced him that day. So I, I was I think there I might that. have been to that first show. And I, I think I, I think I was there, actually. Oh, um, yeah. So I, I, I was there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he and now, you know, there's billboards of him in Times Square and he's, you know, <laughs> crushing it. But, um, you know, comedy is a very what, difficult what, what skill. Got you into comedy and, uh, you know, do you see any parallels between like stand up and, and chess? Absolutely. I mean, first off they're both incredibly difficult to get good at. Like, you know, everybody thinks, oh, if I just study a little bit, I'll be good at chess. Or, oh, I'm a funny guy. I'll just get up there and tell jokes. Everybody always laughs at my jokes. That's not chess and that's not comedy. They're very they're very easy to think that you're going to get good and they're very difficult to get good. Like comedy is maybe the hardest skill I've ever encountered. And it's, you know, the other thing is too, you're, you're constantly 
it, it's a lot of mental energy to do stand up comedy because you're standing up there and you're not just kind of repeating some jokes that you memorized. You are constantly analyzing every single person in the room, particularly in a comedy club where you could pretty much see everybody in the room. You know mm. every face in that room and you know what they're thinking. Like you have to read the room really well. Second, you're doing your joke and in real time you have to figure out, okay, how is the room responding? Should I pause a, a microsecond longer? Should I call out somebody in the audience and do some crowd work? Should I move around the stage a little bit more to keep their attention? You know, you, you know, should I do be a little bit more expressive in an act out? Uh, you know, if you notice Louis CK, Every one of his jokes, you know, he has this insane premise. Uh, he's, he does act out, so he'll do voices of the different characters in his jokes. And he does, he's an absurdist, so he'll have some absurd conclusion. And he also will, he doesn't mind, you know, playing with the crowd a little bit. And there's all these are different skills that you have to get really good at to be a great comedian. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's fair. Just like with chess, there's no skill as chess. If someone says, can I get good at chess? The answer actually is no, because there is no skill called chess. There's you have to get good at tactics. You have to get good at end games. You have to get at openings. You have to get good at middle games. You have to get good. You have to get really good at the psychology. What are you going to do if you lose 10 games in a row? Are you going to quit or are you going to study those 10 games and figure out, you know, are you going to view it as an opportunity to finally study some games where there's actual information to help you get better? And it's, it's they're both very comedy is the same thing. What if you bomb? Uh, well, hopefully you took a video of your set so you could watch the video later. Hopefully you could watch the video with a coach and figure out what you did wrong. The mm. one thing people in both areas don't do as much as they should is probably analyze their losses. Like, so I played in my first tournament over the board just a few weeks ago and I did horribly. And mm. at first I was disappointed, like, oh, what a waste of time, like blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't understand why I was doing so good you know, improving so much online, but like it was just play like a different person. I was playing offline, but you have to, it's a mindset. You have to say, well, look, you can't really learn from your wins. It's actually not that possible. It's not easy to learn from your wins, but it is really easy. If you put in the work, it's easier to learn from your losses. So you almost want to lose when you're starting out because that's like a treasure chest <laughs> of information on on what you could do better. And by the way, it's the same in business. If, if I sell, if I sell something to you and, or if I say, Hey, if I make this product, would you buy it? And you say, yes, I, I can't say I have a good business idea. I don't know why you said yes. Maybe you said yes to be nice to me. Maybe you said yes. Cause you want the, the conversation to end and maybe, you know, but if you said no, I can actually learn something. Now I can actually get some information because you're only going to say no for a reason. You'll say, Yes, for many reasons, you'll say no for only one reason, which is that you don't like the product. And then I could mm. learn something. It's the same thing with chess losses. I learned I, I lost for a reason and now I need to figure it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you really do need to constantly, uh, you know, consider, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, learning from your mistakes. Uh, Elliot Neff uh, a former podcast guest. And also we were actually on a great panel yesterday together about online chess classes, uh, you know, likes to say, right, you either win, draw or learn, uh, you know, in chess, right? So um, 
you know, it would le learning from our mistakes, uh, you know, in business and, you know, and on the board, uh, you know, is, is incredibly important. Uh, and and the course. same thing is true for comedy. Like, let's say, let's say you do a joke twice and one time it like kills and the other time it bombs. Like you just, nobody's laughing. And you could say to yourself, well, I think I did everything the same. I don't understand. But now you have actual uh, something you can learn from. Whereas if both times it succeeded, you won't really understand what you could have done better to improve. Like, cause just because you succeeded doesn't mean you can't be better, but it's hard to understand where you could be better if, if the crowd's just applauding and laughing. So lose, you know, bombing in comedy is the only way to really understand, well, what did I do wrong? And then you could study second by second the video and see, oh, it, it looks like I, I said an uh, or I paused too long, or it's just mm. not funny. Because now I'm not I'm looking at it. I'm not laughing. So uh, it's you only learn from your losses, whether it's investing, chess, comedy, poker, all these things. Yeah, amazing. And I do think that it is, uh, you know, really just important to consider the idea that um, there's context too, right. What one joke might have worked for one audience, you know, or maybe one time of evening uh, or something like that, uh, you know. May, may make a factor you know it also depends if there's an obnoxious heckler in the audience um i, I once actually uh was at uh, the other comedy club uh in in the city at caroline's and uh actually uh robin williams may he rest in peace was a special guest oh wow and uh this one obnoxious heckler like was you know just like screaming he eventually got kicked out of the club uh but uh you know it's funny the guy goes you know like nice like pinstripe suit and he goes yeah the, this is one you can't afford <laughs> or something yeah. like you know and, and it just was a, uh, you know it, it was interesting you know like how even like someone like robin williams will get like hecklers and he just kind of like knew exactly how to like brush the guy off and well, make well that's it, like amazing <laughs> that's just it too like dealing with hecklers is just an entire skill uh unto itself like i one time had uh uh a woman in the a woman in the crowd who was very drunk and she was heckling and uh you have to be very careful because the crowd does not want you to fight back at a woman so you have to be very careful how you challenge a female heckler and uh and particularly someone who's drunk too because you know you don't want to be as dave Chappelle recently put it, you don't want to be seen as punching down and <laughs> so so you you need ways to come back from from heckling and and that's a skill you have to prepare for that that's a skill unto itself so speaking of which you know one thing i can't help but mention uh speaking of crowd work uh as you mentioned on on ben johnson's podcast and dave Chappelle, uh dave Chappelle did once do crowd work with me <laughs> really what did he do uh, <laughs> so um I'm, I'm sure you know the comedy seller downtown yeah, um, so I was actually eating at the Olive Tree, which is the restaurant on top. But it's one little strange thing about the Olive Tree, actually, is to go to the bathroom. They give you the code and you go past the performer downstairs. And I actually had literally no idea who was performing. I was 18. And uh, sure enough, I walk in. I'm like, oh, this is Dave Chappelle. <laughs> yeah. So and, last, uh, last time. He, he, he... Oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was, I was going to say he stopped his whole skit and said, damn, what is the little white boy doing down here? <laughs> yeah, and that, I, it, that was probably a while ago, too. So I don't know if he had like, well, you know, he 
he's always had kind of both types of audiences. But I used to I, I used to tour with um, Tony Woods, who Dave Chappelle acknowledged in his Mark Twain Award speech, because Tony Woods was the guy who kind of mentored Dave, Dave Chappelle and is like a really great classic comedian. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was very it's, it's, their style is very interesting. It's very playful and very conversational with the audience. Um, but Dave Chappelle always has very interesting insights. Yeah, well, that that was definitely, uh, you know, very interesting. And then actually two minutes later, I walked out of the bathroom and he goes, damn, that was fast. <laughs> so it, it, it was definitely interesting and, uh, you know, definitely a fun fact that I could say, I got, you know, made fun of by Dave Chappelle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have, um, I've not had that honor. I've only seen him once live. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know. Sometimes, you know, everything is uh, an accident. Um, although that said, you know, my rabbi, Levy Welton, who's also been on the podcast, you know, is a big fan of saying that, you know, there is no such thing as a, a coincidence. You know, everything is, is meant to be. So, um, you know, That's a good I, it was meant to be, to, you know, get, uh, you know, made fun of by him. So um, anyway, I look, I really want to thank you so much for, you know, taking some time to come on today. I, for one, very much enjoyed this conversation, uh, you know, talking about uh, an array of subjects from, you know, your thoughts on the upcoming world championship to, you know, Magnus Carlson's positional style to leaving corporate America for entrepreneurship, um, ways to uh, build, uh, you know, competitive advantage and overcome, uh, you know, obstacles, uh, talking about risk management and chess and finance, uh, talking about your rapid growth to chess master, uh, you know, tournament play versus online play, uh, and talking about, you know, some of the parallels between comedy and chess. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add while you're, you know, on the show today? Yeah, let me let me ask you, what are you doing right now to improve at chess? I'm just curious, like, what, what are you studying? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, and <laughs> last week, uh, this high school student of mine uh, basically asked the same question. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little embarrassed. <laughs> when, you know, I think she was looking for, you know, some like brilliant answer and things that I was doing. And I was like, honestly, uh, not very much. <laughs> So um, what, what would you say? Like, do you think do you think it's worthwhile studying or watching YouTube videos? Um, I would say not so much, partially just because I'm on the screen all day. You know, I've been on the screen. Well, like probably 75 percent of the day so far. I can't wait to, you know, get away for a little bit, actually. But for me, um, the biggest thing that I actually did start doing uh, recently, uh, both with students and on my own, uh, is learning end games. Um, so I actually roomed at the U.S. Open with Grandmaster Robert Hungoski, uh, a good friend of mine I've known for a long time. And one thing that like really surprised me actually was uh, he got back to the hotel room. I was like literally half asleep. And he was like, Evan, I got to go. I got to show you this game. I was like, okay, fine. You know, I'm not going to like, I, I literally, I got out of bed, uh, you know, to, 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 to listen to it. And, um, you know, he, he was like, we got into this end game and I knew I was going to win, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's around my level, like 2,200. It's a relatively equal end game. If I was playing him, like I might've even offered a draw, <laughs> you know, I, I thought that there was like, not really like that much life, but he was like, no, Evan, 2,200, they don't know end games. He was, no, he was, he was bound to blunder, <laughs> you know, and sure enough, 
you know, Robert outplayed him. Um, and it really just like gave me this whole revelation that like, you know what? I don't know my end games whatsoever. Yeah, like, <laughs> let me ask you like a, a basic one. Like there's, there's kind of knowing the end games in terms of like, Oh, there's still a bunch of pieces. Like there's a bunch of rooks, there's a bunch of pawns and you have to maneuver. And then there's kind of the technical end games, like the Lucina position, stuff like that. Right. Do you know those? So those I do know, um, you know, I've, actually I've, been I, teaching. I've learned them, but I forget them. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, look more than like so. Lucena Philidor, yes, right. I was actually I've been teaching that a lot recently to this one adult intermediate uh, virtual group class that we have. Um, you know, it's like like those I know, but like the ones that are a little bit knee deeper into this rook and pawn endgame books that I so I have this uh, John M's book um, survival guide to rook and pawn endgames, um, which I've been using a lot uh recently um and yeah like the the the, the, the slightly more advanced end games in there like i definitely should know but um I, I i wouldn't say i know them in and out for sure so um that 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 really is where you know i'm working on uh myself um also openings um you know which, which is interesting because i do tell students of course you know not to focus too much on openings um and i actually recently uh with effective chess uh recorded a whole opening repertoire video series uh where you could basically see my whole opening repertoire um so you know when i did that i was like okay my openings are pretty good you know i, I recorded that back in may of this year um, but then I, I realized after that, like, for my level to, you know, if I really want to get the 23, 2400 plus, um, I shouldn't be out of theory on like, let's say move 10 uh, in certain lines of the open Sicilian, right? I shouldn't. But, you, you know, know the, so. the kids are going to memorize all the lines. So have you debated playing a close Sicilian? You know, so it's interesting. Grandmaster Leonid Dudasin, my former coach, and I, we're actually writing a book now about not playing second-rate openings. <laughs> I always, and when I, I always first started this. learning with him, I, I played the close Sicilian. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so I always debate this. Like, it does seem like if you know the main lines, you're going to do better. And if you put, but I've never, I've never been a mainline guy, but maybe I should, I should consider it a little bit. Like, yeah, I play I mean, the, I play the, the modern defense, for instance. Well, I would say the modern is sort of borderline, right? Like you could find some grandmasters who play the modern, right? So for instance, a, a student who's honestly barely lower rated than me, um, you know, she's like 2,100, uh, you know, it, it was playing uh, the Stonewall, okay? And is still playing the Stonewall. And I told her last week that, uh, you know, look, I, I know your previous coach might disagree with this, I personally don't think you should play the Stonewall. You know, she's actually starting to play more, you know, serious invitational tournaments. And she was like, but, but Evan, like, you know, my Stonewall, that's why you get a good position against it. But, you know, a lot of other players might not know me. And I'm like, well, guess what? You're going into these invitational tournaments, right? Whether they actually know you personally or not, guess what? They will earn your openings. <laughs> yeah. Right? In long term, you're, you're, you're just, not going to get that far like yeah you might get the 2200 you might even get the 2300 you know i know you're not making im with the stonewall right so why even like spend so much time doing it now yes there might be a little bit of a 
you know, downfall before you move forward. Um, but yeah, ultimately, you know, no, you, you shouldn't do that because if Black does know like a little bit about what he's doing, he's going to get a perfectly good game. Um, also, you know, look, you're one of the more successful business people out there, right? White has the first mover advantage, right? He's the first person in the industry. He should have an advantage, right? If you're yeah. saying, hey, with a little bit of best play, you could easily equalize. Well, that's half of your advantage. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's uh, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about openings lately, but I'm trying not to study them too much because I feel there's there's more important things. But it's it's definitely something I've been thinking about. So yeah, well, thank you so much for you know everything and uh, you know like a yeah like a really uh, insightful uh, conversation. And uh, yeah, any any, uh, any departing words or uh, ways that maybe people could reach out to you on social media or anything like that? Sure. I mean, if people just Google me, they could find me all over social media. <laughs> and, and I would say there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits, both career wise to learning chess. And also it's just such a fun and beautiful game. But definitely don't definitely don't study it with a goal, like study it because you love it. And that's, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. I mean, look, ultimately you've got to have fun, right? If you're not having fun, you're, you're never going to improve. So, Particularly if I it's because it's a game game should be fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it is a game and you know, like, like anything else, you know, if, if it's uh, you know, you're, you're not enjoying it, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to improve, you know, and, um, you know, one thing I've actually had, uh, you know, several people talk about on my podcast, including some very strong players, um, you know, is, look, your, my, their number one tip for chess improvement uh, is do it in the best way that you're going to enjoy it, you know, whether that is openings for you, okay, study openings, you know, if it is end games for you, study end games. Um, you know, this is something I, yeah, I believe I talked at, about with at length with, with, with Grandmaster Lenderman, um, right? So ultimately, right, you need to study like what's good for you. Um, and even if it's not necessarily the thing that you actually even need the most, if it's something that is going to help you improve and it's something you enjoy, well, it's, it's good for you. So, yeah, I agree. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much, Evan, for having me on the, the show. This has really been great. And uh, I look forward to to meeting in real life at some point. I was just going to say my sincere pleasure. And now that we're both, uh, you know, recovering masters, getting back into the swing of things, um, you know, I'm sure I'll see you, uh, you know, on the tournament circuit at some point. Yeah, let's <laughs> do it. Um, all right. Thanks a lot, Evan. Looking forward to it. Bye.